Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 68 of the Creative Riding Motorcycle Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Stitcher. You can hear my show now on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand, if you don't know. You can download the free app today. You can listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning app. It's free, and it lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discover 65,000 adding everyday news, entertainment, and sports shows. You can create custom playlists. There's over 20,000 shows to discover. You can leave a rating and review in Stitcher just like iTunes. It's available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad, and in over 4 million cars. There's no downloading, no syncing, and no wasted memory. You just stream your favorite podcasts. Hey, don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at Stitcher.com or in the App Store. This episode of Creative Writing is also brought to you by... Chris Singsheim, owner, proprietor, and racer at Nitrous Chris Motorsports, Jason Goldmeyer, Amber Mole, and Christopher Minich, all who let me know that the episode should have been out two days ago instead of today. Sorry, folks. I'll try to get it out right now. You can listen to it sometime Monday. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Creative Riding Motorcycle Podcast, the internet's home for motorcycle Mediocrity, your host. Listen, I can barely tie a shoe, let alone figure out this thing. And isn't that funny how people say not to be an asshole, but they go on to be an asshole? Oh, baby. I don't know. Did it really? I can't tell if he's just revving the motor and being a jerkwad. My skin met the asphalt. But these new new ways kit my... All right. A couple of blurbs. Whatever they do with cocaine. The people who make it happen. The first bike I ever bought was originally hanging from the rafters in his garage. It's a cafe racer with alloy makes, racing tank, and clip-ons, and all that jazz. And the thing's beautiful. I just love the way the Norton sounds. The Soma actually was purchased by uh, the Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum. Right. So that's where she lives now. Oh, man, bro. I was doing 200 miles an hour. My fingers are coming off the grips. This is in and out of traffic. Um, I got to wheelie through an intersection on that. <laughs> Red. Yeah, it was a little unexpected, but I got some applause from the homeless guy at the bus de- bus bench. That was pretty fun. I think my dad first gave me my first motorcycle was a Kiwi 80 when I was four years old, and the first thing I did was look in the bushes, showing mum how cool it was. Well, um, all right. Technically, all chaps are assholes, right? Or else yeah. They just came up with dance. Yeah, that's, we decided that you can call anything without an ass on it assless. All season, my bike's been having a problem hopping off the starting line. Like the back end of the bike will hop real bad and I'll have to let off the gas and get back in it. And I would go to Jesse's and hang out upstairs in the old building at West Coast Choppers. And he let me sit there and just watch him. Uh, right now, I'm drinking a stone rumination, um, but that's not all I do. Earlier today, I was <laughs> I was working on a BMW R90. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to episode 68 of the Creative Writing Motorcycle Podcast. I hope everyone's doing great today. I am feeling wonderful. I wanted to get into a couple things in this show. First off, we'll talk a little bit about Salsa Slam. We'll talk a little bit about writing. And then I want to talk about something that has been bugging me. I've been 
running into it day after day after day every time I read the news. I just bump into it. So I'm going to try to address it the best I can. First and foremost, how the heck is everyone doing? I had a wonderful weekend. You're here in the studio with me, and I'm here with my dog, and we're in sunny SoCal, California. Basically, it's just been like the best riding weather in a long, long time. And the past few weeks have been really sunny. No rain, a little bit of overcast and pretty windy, actually, the other day. thought my house was going to blow down, but nothing happened. As usual with the wind around here, there's a lot of palm trees here in SoCal. Stuff gets blown all over the road. But, I mean, that's such a minor inconvenience and, uh, you know, nothing to complain about. I hope you guys are experiencing the same sort of weather that we've been getting here it's just been so amazing the high winds however i did talk to dr k there were power lines and semis flipping over out in the desert of nevada so if you're out that way probably a lot of dust storms and stuff hope it didn't ruin any of your riding fun and big uh hugs and and heartfelt wishes to the folks in Colombia. there's been a catastrophe there and I'm pretty sure it was it was weather related, and uh, so our hearts go out to all the families and victims and everything that's that's uh, going on with the devastation in Colombia. We'll, we may get into that uh, a little bit later. Check back next week and see how people are doing. In the meantime, let's talk about what we did this weekend. All right, as I mentioned before, we went riding. I went riding this weekend. I went up the hill, up Azusa Canyon. Let me tell you a little bit about Azusa Canyon. It is a lovely, lovely canyon. It's an up and back unless you do, you know, you cut across. There's a, there's a, uh, a mountain road out there. But anyways, there it's, it's really cool. A lot of people know LA for Mulholland, you know, the snake as they call it, or the ride over to the rock store or the ride up and down the, the coast highway. All that stuff is super popular and a little less known is Azusa Canyon and partially because it's mostly an up and back. So there's not a huge loop like you can do over on Angeles Crest and there's, you know, going up to Newcomb's Ranch and dropping down into the Antelope Valley and all that stuff on the other side or going over to Wrightwood, um, which is like Cajon Pass area. It's pretty much like a straight up and straight back. And there is a little, uh, there's, there's Camp Crystal Lake at the top. And if, I don't know, I guess if you're like a horror fan, that holds a kind of a funny taste in your mouth because I think that's where Friday the 13th, Camp Crystal Lake, right? At any rate, yeah, it's a little up and back and it's really cool. And I mentioned the nice weather that we've been having and that was... Uh, okay, it's it's a plus and a minus. Okay, it's, there's some pros and cons to all this because it was beautiful, beautiful riding weather. The flowers are in just looking beautiful right now. The landscape is green because of all the rain we've been having. It hasn't got too hot to dry everything out yet. Um, you know, normally California is brown this time of year, but everything just added up and everything just it was just the most incredible riding weather that we've had in a while and there have been a few days here where it's been you know in the 80s already high 80s i think even 90s a couple weeks ago um so we're really hitting our yearly averages right now as a result, everybody that's been cooped up and cramped up uh, is getting out. And I've been actually spending the last few weekends on two wheels. has not been motorcycle related. I've been on two wheels with my kids. We've been out riding bikes. 
it's just a great time right now. And, and there's a lot of people out doing it as well. You see tons of bikers, tons of hikers, tons of walkers, everybody out there uh, just enjoying this fabulous weather that this part of the country is known for. On the downside of that is, well, let's talk about bicycling for a minute. I, I love bicycling with my kids. It's super fun. I don't enjoy the amount of freaking hobos that have been out and about and if you google earth you know some of the places that we ride down in the riverbeds and stuff there's these crazy hobo encampments so i'm just cruising along with my kids having a good time you know a lot of people will ride their bike for leisure out there and then a few people will pass you with you know these gigantic duffel bags and they're a little bit dirty you know it's cool i got nothing against you know people that are down on their luck or misfortunate or whatever like that but there's these crazy camps you know and i went to this one staging area one night after it was closed i didn't realize it you know i driving up and i see the sign closes at four i was like ah crap it's like five well i go in there and since it closes at four all the crazy hobos that live down in the riverbed and use the bike path as their freeway basically are in there bathing you know using the restrooms filling up their water bottles hanging out at the picnic tables doing all this stuff i mean i guess the ranger probably hadn't come by yet to close down the facilities for the night and uh, you know in the meantime the the guys were there all the all the bums were there you know doing their nightly uh, refills and all that stuff before they had to head back down to their camp so on one hand it's beautiful to get out into these like wilderness areas that have like these really cool bike trails going through them and stuff on the other hand man like the fact that uh, it's like a bum highway out there and the and I wanted to ride my motorcycle out in one part of it and it's like you'd never know when you're just gonna end up running over a hobo who comes stumbling out of the bushes whatnot so going up into the hills now uh cruising up through azusa this this bike path also goes up into the wilderness canyon of azusa and being on my motorcycle now uh i realize there's a lot of bicyclists out there and i know that there's bicyclists over on mulholland and stuff but this one since it's up and back and actually that the bicycle, the San Gabriel River bike path goes all the way down to Long Beach. So a lot of people will ride from Long Beach up into Azusa Canyon and then ride back. I think a lot of these people, I don't know where they were coming from, but they were like in full on team jerseys and stuff. And it's a steep dude. It's like from that point where I was up to the top and back, it's like 20 or 30 miles. I, I forget exactly how long it is. But it's far and it's crazy steep compared to from Long Beach to there. You know what I mean? Like that's not necessarily flat but virtually so these guys these people were just going up this crazy climb i think it's like three probably three thousand feet uh gain, elevation gain in you know 20 miles or whatever however much it is but hell of a lot of bicyclists out there it's like tour de, they're training for the tour de france or something right also a lot of hikers and a lot of campers and i realized that um i'm not really you know i was charging pretty hard at first down where it's more open and you can see um, and you can when you're going toward the hill you can look up you know way ahead you can look up a few corners because it kind of switchbacks up the hill and you can see if there's traffic you can see if there's bicyclists and all that great stuff but I'm usually not used to that and so make a long story short riding up to the top um really fun really really fun ride in the open spots passing bicyclists with no problem on those open straightaways and getting off on dirt to hoon around a little bit and take some pictures and then getting back on and, and cruising up and 
toward the top it gets super super windy and actually narrows and up there is when I would see bicyclists and um, for the most part climbing up the hills they stick to the side like really well um, and then I wasn't expecting runners up there but lo and behold I came around one corner and I was giving it gas and leaning over and I'm starting to push a little wide toward the uh, the white line you know on the outside of the corner and I'm thinking holy crap like I am coming out toward the dirt and I started to like get a little jittery like what am I doing way out here well you know I haven't ridden that road in a long long time and I forgot how tight some of those corners are at the top and so here I'm like leaning not quite as far over as I needed to and I'm giving it gas expecting it to open and it never does it just kind of continues at that radius so you know get back get back down thinking man and the white line up there is painted uh at the edge of the concrete or the edge of the uh, asphalt and the asphalt is literally one foot or so from the mountain from the side of the mountain and so i mean that's how close you know my handlebars are probably six inches from scraping the mountain and throwing me off you know so that's i was just like what am i doing so i get back a couple turns later blind turns you know i'm leaning way far over because i don't want to do that again and i'm like i forgot how twisty it gets up here and I'm leaning over in a right-hand turn, and my head is almost slapping the bushes on the side of the uh, the hill there because I didn't want to, you know, push out again. Um, and lo and behold, right halfway through the turn, there's a dude right in my visor, and I'm like, oh! And I just flicked the bike up real quick, um, just flicked my handlebars, like jump, felt like a like a little bit of a bunny hop or something you know what i mean like that's that's how fast it it was and i didn't didn't dare stand up i would have flew off you know the other side of the road and uh you know i was mid corner but that's like the importance of not target fixating if i would have just stared at the guy or like you know locked onto him i'm i would have hit him and i think i was doing probably like 30 or 35 which doesn't sound very fast but when you watch the commercials of cars getting crash tested and like all the airbag and safety tests that's at 35 miles an hour so i was doing probably 30 or 35 and that wouldn't have felt very good for him or me to smash my head into his body um and he actually jumped a little bit i saw his foot kind of come up and i that's the last thing i saw before i you know just kind of kept looking through the turn to where I wanted to where I wanted to be without flying off the other side of the road and um or going into the other lane even because I didn't know if there was a car coming around the top hand top part of the corner but yeah just this really nice weather bringing out all the bicyclists and runners and stuff like that and really reminded me that you have to expect that to not have the road to yourself because I'll go riding in the fall I'll go riding uh, in the evenings times when people aren't going to be on that road because it's you know they'll never make it back down before dark so yeah it's just like after that I just kind of cruised and the funny thing is is coming down the hill also running into the peloton coming down the hill I was able to pass a few bikers here and there uh, bicyclists here and there but going down that hill uh there was a few times where they were like hogging up the road and that's fine with me on a motorcycle you can usually pass them but then we start going down the hill and it's tight and and you know uh 
there's blind corners. I can't pass them because I don't know what's coming and I don't want to, they're not sticking to the side at this point. They're like starting to take their lines. And then, so we get down the, down the hill a little ways and I passed a few of them where I could, but then we get into the, these really tight twisties and I'm looking down and we're doing 60 and these guys are in front of me doing, so I was like, dude, they're doing 60. I'm just going to cruise. Like I'm in, I don't need to blow by him. I just, when you're behind a, a, a bicycle, you feel like, you know, you're doing five miles an hour or something like that, but you realize you know, we're going down this crazy ass steep hill. These guys are doing 60 freaking miles an hour. So I just stayed behind them for a little bit until we got to some, uh, you know, open straightaways where I could get by them and get in front of them safely so they could get back in the lane. I mean, they weren't moving out of my way. So I kind of had to like get as close as I could to the yellow line. There's no way in hell I'm doing that right before these blind corners. So I just stuck behind him for a little while until there was enough of a straightaway and I blew by him and hit some more guys. And they were doing the same 60 miles an hour. It was so crazy watching. And they're picking lines like you would on a motorcycle. They're, you know, they're going outside to inside and apexing it all crazy. And they're doing it on these little skinny tires. Um, Honestly, I wouldn't want to be one of those guys and run into a, a hiker or a jogger either. You know, <laughs> like talk about like having even less protection than me, just slamming in into somebody. But at any rate, yeah. So to put it into perspective, like these hills are pretty steep and these guys were hauling butt. So at that point I was like, yeah, I don't need to like hard charge it down and run into anybody. This nice weather is bringing all the people out here and uh, we should all pretty much enjoy it right so i just kind of cruised and it was fun on a side note i stopped and uh checked on that runner going down the hill i i saw him uh you know this is a while later and i just pulled over to apologize and he's like no big deal you know i expect people to be coming around those corners and I, and it was really really a small area where, where i was running and i was like yeah it just freaked me out i didn't want to like freak you out and make make sure you're okay and everything like that so that was pretty cool and then the inevitable happened and i got stuck behind a jeep that was being driven by a soccer mom who thought she was mario andretti in slow motion. I have never felt so cynical and so sarcastic and just nasty. And I'm yelling stuff inside my helmet at this dumb Jeep because pull over, man. There's those pullouts on the side of the road, right? For you to make way for faster traffic. And when bicycles are coming down at 60 miles an hour, give me a break, lady. Like you're doing, she was doing like 40 and 45 and I don't know what the speed limit is there, but I know that it's not 45. You know what I mean? I think it's like at least 50, but she was like, Oh man, like I'm going to speed up and go crazy. This guy, you know, try to help him out. And, uh, to be honest, she would speed up to like 47 and then we'd hit the turns and she'd like slam on the brakes to like 30 to, you know, I was just, it was so annoying. Uh, in the meantime, while riding down, I saw somebody changing their oil. Um, I, you know, a couple dudes popping wheelies up my way toward me while I had to sit behind Mrs. Slowpoke. I think they were trying to show off like, look what we can do. We're not behind a grandma in a Jeep. Uh, and there's uh, researchers up there like taking photos of a like a condor nest or like a bald eagle nest or some huge gigantic nest up in this tree. I had time to just sit there and watch that as we're going through corner. I mean, you know, you're going slow when you're like taking leaning through corners with one hand and uh, 
I don't know. It was just, it's an annoyance. But then again, like I said, that nice weather bringing everyone out to play. So it's the price I had to pay and uh, just unfortunately got stuck behind that lady. But all in all, it was a good day. Fun ride. Stopped by CSC Motor Scoots uh, on the way up the hill. And uh, if you don't know CSC Motorcycles, you will. We I basically stopped in with the sole purpose of setting up an interview to talk about them. And while I was in the showroom... I noticed this brand new model that they just got in, and it was looking sweet, but that'll be later. Uh, Let's get on to uh, another topic of the show. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for everyone that played along during the Solstice Slam. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed each one of your submissions, uh, reading them. I'd like to say thank you to our celebrity guest and voice impersonations by... uh, uh, Cookie LaRoche Christopher Walken and uh, Diane Keaton no no is that right? <laughs> Diane Keaton Diane Lane who the hell did our thing anyway thank you everybody for contributing your contributions we are waiting on one celebrity guest judge we've got some other uh, tallies in there's some some surprises there easy for me to say surprises but uh, yeah some people picked some Uh, interesting stories and liked what some people had to say which I was just uh, stunned by somebody actually liked one of your things Jason Goldmeyer so at any rate uh, yeah this is uh, pretty interesting I can't wait to get the final results in and share those with you that will probably be is that Easter yeah I guess it'll be the weekend of Easter and uh, so yeah that's really exciting and I'm already looking forward to next year and if you listen to the episode and you're catching up and you want to uh, try to get in like a last minute word on your own maybe uh, some some listener suggestions what you liked and we'll see if they jive up with what our uh, celebrity judges are, are guessing and uh, if they do eh, maybe you can push someone in, in a different direction you know maybe or maybe you could help somebody that we we're on the fence about but anyways yeah that will be we'll probably be announcing the winners on the next show so if you can uh, do us a favor and just leave us a message sometime this week also if you're hearing this it's obviously you're you're either hearing it on SoundCloud and you're hearing or you're hearing it via iTunes or something like that we are now on Stitcher so I would like to say please if you are having if you don't like one of the platforms or maybe you don't have an Apple device um, go ahead and, and go over to Stitcher and give us a try leave us a review uh, if we get five reviews or whatever it helps us be found a lot easier just like the uh, I, iTunes does so yeah at any rate uh, check us out over there I'm excited to be on a new platform and uh, just as excited as I was to get all your uh, submissions for the Solstice Slam so let us know which one you like the best and like I said I can't wait till next year we're hopefully going to get some some uh, bigger and better prizes each year so this, this ought to be great alright now let's yap and yammer on about something near and dear to my heart which is Falt Track. Alrighty, alrighty, let's talk about Falt Track. American Falt Track. Alright, everybody, before we begin, I just learned some very sad news. Um, Jameson Miner has passed away due to injuries sustained at uh, this past weekend's Charlotte uh, Speedway. 
And uh, first lap of the AFT singles race uh, went down and succumbed to his injuries yesterday in the hospital. Our prayers go out to his friends and family and everyone in the flat track community. Um, every single time one of these young kids goes out there and loses a life, it's always tragic. Um, luckily, I mean, if there is a, a lucky side to this, uh, they pass doing what they love and um, wouldn't, wouldn't, they knew the dangers of this and they wouldn't be out there doing it if uh, they didn't calculate the risks and decide that this is uh, what they want to do. So, Jameson, uh, race in peace and prayers to your family and friends. Well, we didn't really have much time to talk about this last week because of the Solstice Slam going on, but I wanted to mention something that I've noticed recently, and that is, well, let's let's back up. Last week, uh, we'll talk about in a second. The week before that, um, during the Solstice Slam, the... Uh, you know, the racing that happened at the Dixie International Speedway is, uh, there's a lot of hubbub going on about Jared Meese and Sammy Halbert clacking into each other. And, uh, just wanted to say, I feel kind of like now that American Flat Track is coming on board, um, I don't know, it's gaining popularity and I feel like everyone thinks that as soon as something gets really popular, they have to do what every other popular format does and that's get a little soap opera action in it. I kind of blame reality TV and all that, you know, quote reality TV and celeb reality and all that crummy stuff that tries to go behind the scenes and make overproduced drama happen out of really nothing. And uh, even going as far as like reenacting stuff, you know what I mean? And and this weekend's race, and and, you know, before I talk about this weekend's race, Sammy Halbert sounded off on it and kind of just said, you know, it sucked leading that many laps and then falling. And Jared Meese said, you know, we were blocking each other and I came in. You know, these guys, Jared Meese is name is the jammer and uh you know slammy slamming sammy you know they're they're always going bar to bar they sammy crashes quite a bit and if you watch jared hell if you watched him at the mama tried um flat track you know flat out friday you'll see he jammed it right into the back of Corey texter he's he you know he'll do whatever he has to do to get to the front and that's how he's you know won two races so far this year right and uh so it was nothing new seeing a rider go down, obviously, you know, every single flat track race, somebody, somebody eats it. Uh, it did kind of suck that it happened right, you know, after Sammy had led so many laps, but they're Dyson and Mises coming through. And I just felt like they had tried to overplay it. And, uh, you know, during all the red flags and all this stuff going on at this, at the Charlotte, uh, event, I feel like they're playing all these clips of Jared talking about it and this and that. And it's just kind of funny. It seems it seems more soap opera-y than uh, Flat Track normally is. They normally, uh, you know, usually anticipate each other going down. It's not like MotoGP where they cry and whine when they fall down and complain about how they're playing with the, with people's lives and this and that when there's when there's crazy riding it's like man bar to bar banging is part of sometimes the strategy right so i don't know i feel i've had this like twinge in the back of my neck watching that going man this feels so overproduced and uh, they're making such a big deal out of it you know so I don't know. Take that for what it's worth. In other news, Brian Smith knocked Mies off his hat trick 
by taking a first place in the Charlotte event. So Mies won, um, you know, the inaugural Daytona TT. He won the Georgia event and he came in second. And you speaking to Sammy Halbert, he came in third uh, at Charlotte. So it's not like he's not up there and able to compete. You know what I mean? Sammy Hubbard knows what he's doing. He's a good racer. He's one of my favorite racers actually. And uh, I don't know if they're making a big deal about it because Sammy's on a Harley and Jared's on an Indian or what. I don't know what the soap opera has to be about all this, but congratulations to Brian Smith, um, on knocking Meese off of his, like I said, his triple, uh, triple ring dinger. Wow, that was some genius work right there. It's triple ring dinger. Well, his hat trick. So at any rate, um, Indian's still sweeping the uh, the first three events, though. There's no mistake about that. They took uh, for, uh, first, second, and third in the, in the uh, last event. Oh, shoot, I forget if they took, I forget if they swept the podium on the TT, but they have been in the number one spot uh, for the first three races. That's a, pre- a pretty impressive start for Indian. Uh, kind of shows you where, you know, I'm sure Brad Baker actually would have been up on the podium had he not had a mechanical. I think he, his bike gave out on him like in the shoot, like in the first couple of few laps there of the main. And so, yeah, what a bummer uh, for, for Indian on that in that aspect. But he was running right up there in the lead as well. Uh, so, yeah, it's quite possible that Indian would have swept the podium again this week had that not happened. So Harley Davidson's really got their, uh, you know, stuff cut out for him this year as far as racing goes. We'll see as far as sales goes. We all know they have their, you know, 43 billion new bikes each year. I don't you know what? I think I looked right over the street rod. I know I. I I don't even know if I posted anything about it on Facebook uh, or any of our social media, but you know, there, that thing also appealing to the 750 riders has a little bit more of a, when you look at the street 750, um, it's kind of like what the roadster is for hooligan bikes. The, the, uh, street rod is for, um, the, the street models and ironically, well, not ironically, but I think it's so funny that they used to have a V rod called the street rod too. It actually had like rear controls and you sat on it kind of like a cafe racer rather than in it, like a cruiser. Um, I kind of dug that bike too. I think it's funny probably to avoid like patent and trademark, um, costs. They just resurrect the name and slap it on a different bike. But at any rate, yeah, that bike is probably geared toward the younger riders that want to see these 750s come up and want to get one of their own that doesn't take heck of a lot to customize and and make it. I mean, the stance is already there, just like the Roadster is kind of there for flat tracking, uh, like in the hooligan class and stuff, that uh, the street rod is kind of there as far as 750s go. It's It's got that jacked up uh i think it's got piggyback shocks too and it's got that jacked up stance for you know putting a 18 inch wheel i think it even has 18 inch wheels if i'm not mistaken i you know i do that stuff for work and when i'm not at work i try not to pay attention to it okay so but at any rate i'm really excited for the next few rounds and i'm really happy with this new format actually and i'm glad that the the brands are getting exposure that you know the singles because they only used to get you know, notify, notice and, and exposure on the short tracks, really. So it's really cool to see that whole class getting total exposure and providing the factories an opportunity to do contingencies and sponsorship, things of that nature. One thing I did want to say, uh, 
sort of goes along the lines of me talking about my ride this weekend. You know, it's great weather. As a result, everybody wants to come out and enjoy that great weather, which makes your ride not so great if you want the road alone and to go head first into the twisties. Well, I feel sort of the same way about American Flat Track. Last year and, and all the years preceding, uh, when I first discovered Fans Choice, it was amazing. Uh, you, you honestly get some really epic uh, production and you get in the past, there was some really great announcers and play-by-play action. And, I mean, you can't go for free. You know, when you're th- talking about like $150 or something crazy like that for a MotoGP pass or even like having to pay extra for your cable bill, you know, to get a sports package to even get racing. When you're talking about being able to go to fanschoice.tv and watch the flat track races for free, that is pretty amazing. The whole, all the production and, you know, even the, the labels and everything on the screen and the credits and the display, you, you try to do that, you know what I mean? So they got it all figured out and worked out. But one thing I have noticed is that as a result of flat track gaining such popularity and fanschoice.tv becoming like the one of the only places you can see uh, the flat track feed live, the bandwidth has seemed to suffer a little bit. And now that it's super popular and I've been telling everybody to watch it and I'm sure every single person that has come to flat track is like, Hey, yeah, dude, we can watch it here. I've noticed that the quality and and I've noticed a few other shows talking about how bad and poor the quality is. And that kind of sucks because in the past it was really, really good. I mean, it was like high def all the time. And when I was watching it this weekend, I know I did notice that it was pixely a lot and, and I, it would drop the feed or, you know, the website would kind of cut out or whatever. I'd have to reload the page. That means you miss a couple minutes. So, similar to the good weather bringing every single yokel out into the world to ride their motorcycle or walk in front of you on their path to a hiking trail watching fans choice and uh, getting engaged with flat track is gonna leave a sour taste in some people's mouths i think so fanschoice.tv really needs to like up their bandwidth game or whatever's going on i'm sure it's kind of hard being at a track and broadcasting out to the internet or whatever you know i'm not i don't even know how they do it but i do know that for doing it for free they do a hell of a job and in the past there was never any any problems with bandwidth i even noticed that the daytona 200 they don't have like maybe it's a licensing issue maybe they don't have access to all the audio um but last year chris carr and scott dubler were announcing so you had a flat track racer and a guy who has an and you know a great announcing voice uh teamed up together and you kind of got this insight and you got play-by-plays you got what the racers were thinking and now it's uh, i believe scott's up by himself in the booth and bubba blackwell who is like Evil Knievel Jr. is down there on the field interviewing guys down in the in the box. So they don't even have as many correspondents as they used to, which kind of sucks. But at the same time, it may just be a growing pain. We may see it ironed out. And like I said, I don't know if it has to do with licensing issues um, now that NBC is NBC Sports has um, dibs on that series as well. And I don't know if they aren't tapping into some of the audio that the uh, track provides or the facilities where they're at provides. So there, there could be a couple things, but you know, don't just stick with it peeps a, because it's really the only place you're going to see it. And the replays should be good. The replays, um, they usually release them the week after they happen and they get you know, everything edited down and this and that. And, uh, that's usually fine. There's usually no quality issues 
during the replay. So if you're got a sour taste in your mouth, wait a few days for it to come out and then rewatch it or whatever and uh, get all your action in then. Or if you're away on vacation, that's even better because then you can do what you do with like podcasts and just like bulk watch them. Right. And so that is one way to do it. Um, I'm hoping it's just uh, bandwidth issues and, and a growth issue with uh, fanschoice.tv. And I hope they get it sorted out, please. Um, you know, if you're watching the twins race uh, versus the singles, I don't know. To me, it seemed like there was still bandwidth issues. So I don't know if it's necessarily viewership increased or or what it is. But at any rate, uh, yeah, I hope they iron that out before the season's over. Otherwise, a lot of people are going to be pretty upset and not, you know, you can maybe attribute some of the uh, attrition to that if, if people quit watching. So that's uh, just something I noticed. It was rotten and gross. Was it even meat? Hey everybody, if you're in the San Diego area and you need to fix your bike or you need someone to show you how to do it, check out Cerberus Moto. We interviewed them in episode 64 and guess what we found out? Not only are they great people, they're helpful and they're willing to help you get your bike back on the road. Heck, they're willing to help you tear your bike to shreds and rebuild it one piece at a time. What do you get out of that? Well, you get the know-how of an expert mechanic, you get the friendliness of a tight-knit bike community, and you get your own personal space if you're a member of the shop. So check them out at CerberusMoto.com. Tell them Creative Writing sent you. They'll charge you double. Okay, well here comes the part of the show that I've been dreading, and uh... Partially because this is something that piqued my interest a couple days ago, well, a couple weeks ago. And uh, I've been doing a lot of reading and getting news just shoved in my face every time I turn on a, you know, a powered device, an internet-connected device, or pick up a paper. All I see is Trump this, Trump that, climate change this, climate change that. And so I was thinking, what the heck is going on with all these articles up in here? People, it seems like people are starting to regret their choice for president. And uh, just reading some of the some of these things about, I don't know, pick your topic really, but specifically for me, I was like, fossil fuels, huh? Like, what's all this crazy stuff that's going on here? With you know, I was reading a pretty conservative newspaper, and the whole opinion section was a. Uh, about how people are coming together, Republicans and Democrats, to counteract some of the stuff that the, the current administration is enacting or stripping away. And I thought, what the heck? And then I see some other stuff. You know, we're always, well, the current administration's always talking about China taking our jobs away, you know, specifically manufacturing, um, you know, taking other certain opportunities away from us. And uh, now they're taking our leader, our role as leader in saving the earth away from us, too, because in 2013, it, things got so bad in China as far as like their coal use, you know, and they're making steel and they're building all sorts of crazy stuff in China right now. And I live in a part of the town that has a very high, uh, specifically Chinese um, immigrant population. Everybody wears face masks. 
right? And it's because of not only because they're coming to LA and it's a smoggy city, but they're coming from a place where if you didn't wear one, you were just like fraught with health problems. And that's one of the things that China was facing. And that's why they started to quit using coal as early as 2013. And they were really looking at what was happening to the population over there and you know their carbon emissions and all this stuff were just crazy so they set a five-year plan to get all their stuff down right right when we or right when the current administration is signing legislation or actually signing orders to repeal existing legislation i should say so it's kind of interesting that now china is taking away our role as captain planet which by the way i think was a very cheesy 80s or maybe early 90s cartoon i don't remember but anyway i thought that was funny and it just the fact that we were reversing roles and the previous administration hell i think back all the way into the 90s we were talking to china about their global pollution and i've mentioned before pictures of india and china back you know 10 15 years ago were crazy you know what i mean it was it was almost like looking at the u.s during like the 60s and 70s right before we had the epa and um yeah just incredibly incredibly filthy and uh wonder you know it's the necessity for people to wear masks over there just to walk around so it's interesting that we're flipping now and the Paris uh, Paris Agreement, which was signed in 2015, I think it played off the Kyoto Compact of like 2008 or whatever. I mean, we've been studying global warming for a long time and climate change. And actually, I think Ronald Reagan was, uh, after Richard Nixon forming the EPA, I think Ronald Reagan took infrared pictures because I think I remember seeing this. I found an old National Geographic from like 1981 or something, and it showed the cover of the magazine was shot in thermal imaging, and they were talking about studying warming habits back then. So, I mean, it's nothing new, man. This has been going on for like 40 or 50 years that we've been trying to figure this stuff out. Got me thinking about the fossils and our fossil fuels. Like, when I think of fossil fuel, to me, a fossil fuel is a tank of gas that is three months old like that's fossilized baby that's you know i don't i don't let my gas sit around long enough to turn you know the ethanol into you know separate from the gas but then i got real and so i think well what what about the fossils in our fossil fuels we always say i remember my first writing course you know let's go burn some dinosaurs that was like we all got a good laugh out of that and then i started looking at all this pro coal talk and the fact that if we now kind of renege on our goals to cut back on coal and other stuff like that, then that's going to give people in China a chance to kind of, you know, say that they need to push back against their government and, you know, get some coal, you know, keep using coal and and, uh, all this, that to make their steel and to keep their infrastructure going and this and that. I don't know. I just started to strike me all the stuff about global warming and then I read these articles, like I'm telling you, in a pretty conservative newspaper that were pretty uh, anti-global warming. And one of them was a, a, a called a smart plan that everyone can support. And it was basically about a climate action plan that had Republicans and Democrats uh, reaching across and forming this committee. And there's a couple Republican committees that already existed um, that joined on. And, and there's actually a group of people... Uh, The Republicans introduced House Resolution 424, recognizing the threat of climate change and calling for federal action. And by the close of the uh, 114th 
Congress, there was a bunch of um, Republicans. They had, uh, including people from the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus. And then the Democrats joined them last year and they founded the Climate Solutions Caucus. And basically it's to bring the two parties together to evaluate the challenges of climate change and try to develop some sort of response via policy or law or whatever to, to change it. And the, and the other article in here is um, talking about, and, and other stuff I've read, starts talking about, you know, if you repeal a lot of the stuff from the EPA, then states are going to actually have more freedom to regulate even harder because there won't be a minimum boundary anymore. And California's carb laws as part of the Clean Air Act back way back in 1970. We have our own, like even more strict than the EPA. And there's 13 states that follow our laws. So everyone says, oh, carb, you know, living out in California, blah, blah, blah. Well, there's already other states that also follow our um air resources board laws so and our guidelines and and they're probably pretty clean states because i can tell you that california has cleaned up since i've lived here and um i remember driving when we first even moved to la it was pretty smoggy and on some days you can see it but um talking to old timers and people that have uh, been around here for a long time it's nothing like it was in the 80s or even 90s so it's pretty incredible so this geoengineering stuff really started to uh, get, catch my attention, specifically with the uh, the fossils in our fossil fuels. Kind of got me thinking because they're talking about climate change and SRM, which is solar radiation management, and how certain things affect um, the radiation that gets trapped inside. And I was thinking, man, this doesn't sound like any different from some of the stuff that happened billions of years ago, right? So I started looking into the dinosauric things, and I found out a thing or two about the fossils in our fossil fuel. Here goes. The first thing I learned about the fossils in our fossil fuels was that dinosaurs were not the first life on Earth. Actually, that didn't surprise me because I knew that they weren't the absolute first. But did you know that there uh, were reptiles before dinosaurs? Did not know that. The second thing I learned is that there wasn't just one mass extinction. Um, I was always under the impression that a asteroid hit Earth or uh, dinosaurs farted too hard and they all died out. Well, I learned that there were like there was one huge mass extinction and then behind that one there were five others with even smaller ones in between so it seems like things have been going extinct here and there uh, since the earth's been around actually and so i did not know that something i did know is that cavemen or humans and there's several different human species but humans and dinosaurs did not walk together land of the lost and Fred Flintstone, you've ruined people's perception of time and space because humans came much, 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 much later than dinosaurs. We were not even overlapping a little bit. Another thing I learned was that dinosaurs are extant. Extinct means, you know, no longer living. Extant means still living, right? So birds are considered dinosaurs. And if you look at a cassowary or an ostrich, or even a giraffe for that matter, you'll kind of see what a dinosaur might have looked like and how they might have moved. Cassowaries and ostriches are the grossest, creepiest things ever. And when we think of dinosaurs, 
we're not, you know, dinosaur is one group of reptiles, as another thing I learned. There were five or four other groups before dinosaurs arrived. And all these things had in common is that, um, you know, they were they were reptilian, kind of scaly skin. If you peel the, ch- the skin off a chicken, I'm telling you, it kind of looks scaly. But even the modern, the later dinosaurs, um, like Oviraptor and even Velociraptor, they found feathers in some of their um, fossil imprints. <clears throat> I just breathed in some highly contaminated coal dust. Sorry about that. So anyways, there's also fossils of little like chicken-sized birds or like hawks. And if you think of raptors and actually any bird and their creepy beady eyes and their scaly feet, you can imagine that this is like a little dinosaur now covered in feathers though. Um, but something else that I learned is that even dinosaurs and pre-dinosaur reptiles had fur at some point. So let's take a minute and jump on our BMW Next 100. That's the electric vehicle of the future. And I'm telling you, after reading about all this stuff, I can tell you that uh, electric is going to be the future, especially when you have people trying to go away from coal and go away from all these fossil fuels, which uh, have taken 2.4 billion years to make. And once they're gone, we we won't. I'm not going to sit around and wait 2.4 billion years before I can uh, crack open my V8, you know, or my V4 or whatever I got that's, that's combustion engine and uh, you know take it for a spin. I don't think I'm going to last 2.4 million years. So I'm willing to go with electric and that's why it's going to be coming pretty soon is because eventually these resources are finite. And instead of waiting until that day happens, companies right now are being a little bit more proactive and moving forward with electric technology and stuff like that. And if you remember a few, probably about 20 episodes ago, the Germans are coming. BMW revealed back in October their next 100, not only cars, but motorcycles with all the crazy technology that's going to be in it. But they also said that Germany in particular is looking to ban combustion engines and specifically, you know, because of Dieselgate, probably they've had so much problems with with um, emissions and things like that, I'm assuming, is that they want to get away from it. So BMW, Audi and Volkswagen and all the all the German Groups. I mean, that's a big group of car manufacturers, super high-end, super technologically advanced, and already looking into electric vehicles, you know, for the past few years, they're going to make it happen. And so we won't have electric stuff coming out of Germany anymore. So BMW Next 100, let's hop on and go back in time. Alrighty, so here we are. 2.3 to 2.4 billion years ago there's already been life it's already been in this really crazy acidic sea that we're in and the atmosphere right now we can't breathe it there's no oxygen right now or there's not enough i mean there are little microorganisms that are predating other you know large sea life right now but they're not producing enough oxygen to go into the atmosphere or anything so most of the stuff right now lives in water gets its a Oxygen uh, probably has a hydrovascular system instead of a cardiovascular system and, you know, probably extracts or produces water, whatever. I'm not 100% sure on this early, early microorganism stuff or even the stuff that uh, even the, the animals that live in the sea at this point. We're, we're 2.4 billion years ago. I, even I wasn't born yet. But 
Right around 2.3 or 2.4 billion years ago, cyanobacteria, which were these little tiny bacteria in the, in the surface of the water, they began to produce oxygen via photosynthesis because they lived near the top of the water. And it took 200 million years, but over the next 200 million years, they're going to produce so much free oxygen that it's going to saturate organic matter um, or dissolved iron to the point where these things would like soak it up like a sink, like a heat sink, but they're not going to be able to hold on to it anymore. And it's going to escape into the atmosphere. And the atmosphere at this point is pretty much uh, methane. You know, and this increased oxygen is going to offset Earth's original atmosphere, which is unbreathable by life as we know it. And one of the most significant of Earth's extinctions is going to happen. And it didn't happen overnight. It took 200 million years for enough oxygen to get produced. But there's these things called obligate anaerobic organisms, which means that they are poisoned by oxygen. And then there was other uh, aerobic organisms, and they could live like anywhere in the water as long as they could get photosynthesis and make their own oxygen, they'd live. But these cyanobacteria that lived at the top, they were just starting to produce massive amounts of oxygen, so much so that it killed off all the other obligate anaerobic organisms. If you, if you were poisoned by oxygen, you died. So that was one of the biggest first extinctions that ever happened. And that was millions of years ago. That was 2.4 billion years ago. The earliest uh, life didn't even, I mean, that was the earliest life, but the earliest large life didn't even start for a while after that. So an example of early oxygen removal from the atmosphere uh, can be in the form of rust or iron banding. And we see it in sedimentary formations in places like Minnesota or Pilbara, West uh, Australia and I, I'm not sure about Red Rock um, Las Vegas I mean no, I, I know they have a lot of red rocks but I'm not 100% sure what that came from but that's how they know that there was like this crazy oxygenation period and that was like that's a specific marker in time I also didn't know how many ice ages there have been but there have been quite a few and what happened is when all this oxygen did finally accumulate in the atmosphere. It oxidized that greenhouse gas, which is methane that was in the atmosphere at the time. And from what I understand, it oxidized the methane into carbon dioxide and water, causing the first ice age, which was known as Huronian glaciation or snowball earth. And snowball earth lasted like 300 to 400 million years. Let's... um read our little manual at least we brought some reading material from the future so we don't have to be like bored by all this crazy little cytoplankton type stuff here but what i was looking at is uh right here taking they're talking about um nowadays being able to take carbon dioxide out of the air using uh cdr which is carbon removal technologies and it says taking the extra carbon dioxide out of the air returns the earth's atmosphere to its prior state so it doesn't seem particularly risky but it's really hard to do um now they also mentioned acid and methane in in this article and like being byproducts and and getting carbon dioxide out will make it extremely uh, methanous, I guess, or methane, leave, leave a lot of methane once you take all the carbon dioxide out, and it might make the ocean's uh, acid levels different, and that's going to kill off, you know, plankton and coral and maybe even fish, and that's exactly what happened millions of years ago when this methane um, got turned into oxygen, you know what I mean? It, it killed all the stuff that lived in that really acidic uh 
water and the methane atmosphere at the time. So sure, it's changed for the better for us and for like most life that has come after us and that we think of as breathing air, you know, and, and air being like the one thing we need on earth besides water. But on the other hand, there was a lot of stuff that lived in that, that and, and even that lives in acidic places and hot places like weird volcanoes and springs and stuff at the bottom of the ocean and in weird caves that's super acidic that can't live outside that atmosphere. They're the minority right now, but at one time they were the majority. So I don't know if we're just I'm pretty positive that humans have had a a big impact on the change that's happening whether we're expediating it or changing it um, to a to a way that it wasn't going to go back to or maybe even not that fast but it looks like it's happened before and it's happened um, you know after this oxygen oxygenation event that happened and killed off half you know half life on earth and we became a snowball well, now we got water and now we have oxygen and eventually there was a bunch of like chemical stuff that happened. I'm not like a paleontologist or a geologist or even a scientist for that matter, but there were a bunch of insert crazy scientific words here, things that happened and the Earth's atmosphere stabilized into what could like basically uh, give us life. And since that Extinction. There's been five other major ones. With like I said, there's been a bunch of smaller ones in between. But um, before we talk about that, I do want to talk about before the dinosaurs. What else is in our fossils that make up our fossil fuels? So before dinosaurs, there were other creatures, entirely different animals that uh, ruled the earth tens of millions before the popular dinosaurs like Triceratops, T-Rex, uh, the Pteranodons, and all the flying cool ones and all that stuff um for 120 million years so to, so like tens of millions of years before that uh for 120 million years it was dominated by uh pelicosaurs or pelicosaurs archosaurs or archosaurs and um therapsids which were sort of mammal-like reptiles and we'll get into that in a little bit and the first ones evolved the first reptiles evolved during the carboniferous period before that we had crazy sea life there was these all sorts of crazy sea monsters like if you imagine the vikings and all their drawings of the monsters that lived in the sea uh you know when they were trying to sail and scare people about all the monsters in the sea and they're talking about like a whale and an elephant seal well imagine like what they're really what their imaginations were thinking of as sea monsters and those things are like what lived before uh, land dinosaurs uh, appeared and basically the carboniferous period was like the swampy super vegetated kind of boggy period and we had these things called tetrapods which i think were amphibious they start to dominate uh specifically life on land and for millions of years before them ocean life was basically the dominant uh habitat and like the generas and stuff that lived were all from there so the first little one we have is um hope i'm pronouncing this right hylonomus Hylonomus, which means forest mouse. And before you start thinking mouse, it does, there's nothing like mouse. It's got scaly skin, all right, and a little long tail. Um, imagine like a gross, like newt. I don't know why they call it forest mouse, but maybe the way it walked and the fact that it had a long tail and it wasn't a fish, you know, with these weird like board type fins like a mud skipper, how they can, and, and a grunion, how they can go up on the land, hang out for a bit, and run back like 
this was the first thing that actually had started to develop like uh, limbs and stuff. Still amphibious though, but they started to become um, the first tetrapods to, to lay eggs and have scaly skin rather than like fish scales and like shark skin or dolphin skin or whatever the hell the things had before that. There's plenty of fossil stuff of all the sea animals around and they look a lot like uh, plesiosaurs and um, eels, a lot of eel-like, snake-like uh, creatures. That was They were like their own whole um, group, as a matter of fact, and they'll come in, uh, in a little bit. But they believe that the elevated oxygen levels of the Carboniferous period sparked this complex animal development. And the Hylonomus fossils have been found dating back 315 million years. So this little gross newt thing that they call the forest mouse is probably part of what we're putting in our gas tanks nowadays and what we're pressing coal to make fake diamonds or whatever the hell or steel whatever the hell we're using it for we're not heating our homes with it anymore you know what i'm saying but anyway 15 million years pass and so 300 million years ago by the way, 300 million years, this BMW Next 100 gets great gas mileage as far as time travel. So 300 million years ago, the Earth's climate started to change again, and amphibians began to die out because it started to get hotter and drier. So see, global warming technically isn't anything brand new, but they don't know what, obviously, they... You know, only one guy was around back then. Uh, his name was Tom, and he's not telling anybody anything. But the hotter, drier climate started to lay waste to, uh, you know, the smaller reptiles. Uh, actually, the smaller ones like Hylonomus and little amphibians, they were spared because, you know, the reptiles were developing. They could regulate their own body temperature. But when stuff started to dry out, the amphibians just started to go, right? And so after that, we the, the pelicosaurs, I hope I pronounced that right, they begin to run the town. So the tetrapods start to fade. There were the amphibious sort of reptile, amphibian things. I know amphibians aren't reptiles. That's why I'm tr- trying to say this correctly. But the tetrapods die out and the pelicosaurs come on. And they are, you know, running the town for a while. Um, we still have amphibians, actually, but they're not nearly the size or the quantity of the Carboniferous uh, through the Permian period. So if you can imagine, like, amphibians dominating, so like what, like newts and frogs and salamanders and water lizards or whatever, anything that's an amphibian, imagine those things running the earth, right? Being like uh, feral cats in Italy or wherever there's a lot of cats. But now we, we still have amphibians. There are just a lot less of them, and they're, they're way smaller. So of the pelicosaurs that come on, uh, Demetriodon is one of the most famous ones. And if you know him, they're the ones that got the big spine on their back. And they were like in all the 50s Hollywood movies. So that isn't a dinosaur. That's a pelicosaur or pelicosaur. I don't know how to say it. But near the end of the pelicosaurs, the evolution and rise of the therapsids. These guys come in to dominate the landscape. And what's different about these guys is the, I was wondering if these guys were what's uh, powering my motorcycles right now and my, my car. Because these are the guys that we start to think of as like right before the dinosaurs. Their legs, uh, all the previous reptiles look like reptiles. They look like big iguanas walking around. That's why Demetriodon had that big sail on its back and its arms out to the side. And that's why they would use iguanas in the old like 1930s and 40s dinosaur flicks. Because early pre-dinosaur reptiles walked like reptiles. 
But now that the rhapsids come on and they're like, uh, their legs start to go below their bodies. And if you think of somebody with their legs below their bodies, you start thinking of like Stegosaurus, T-Rex, Velociraptor, all those guys that can like uh, walk around on two and four legs instead of with their legs out like a crocodile. Yeah. So that's what's happening. That's what the rhapsids, the rhapsids, um, and they have really like dog-like canine teeth, powerful jaws. So that, you know, a lot of carnivores coming out in this time. And 250 million years ago, two thirds of all the land dwellers went extinct. They don't know if it's a meteorite impact. That's not unlikely. Um, but whatever, some if there was a meteor impact, there's some in like Canada that makes like a circular lake. Um, every year i guess or something like that and there's some in france and there's like a crater in the gulf of mexico we got a crater in uh i believe arizona one in utah and there's probably a bunch more i mean the basically the moon played catcher's mitt for us but it let a few by we got hit by a couple and i'm not 100 percent sure see when i think of that i think oh the asteroid that wiped out dinosaurs but turns out it didn't wipe out all of them it wiped out two-thirds of them and it probably wiped them out locally in some area and then volcanoes probably wiped them out in other places and why am i even talking about all this stuff is because i'll it's gonna lead up to what they're planning to do in the next few years here so so keep your ears peeled for this Let's, let's keep talking about our Jurassic friends because they are the ones that are powering our race bikes down. Well, I don't know. Is nitrous made of the nitrosaur? I don't know. But I do know that my gas comes from one of these guys. So it was interesting to me to learn about them. So two-thirds of all land dwellers disappear 250 million years ago because something happened. They don't know if it was a meteor or volcanic activity, but there are surviving therapsids. Um, Lestrosaurus was the most prolific, and there is they're found all over the world. And it's basically because Pangea at this part started to separate as well. If you take all the continents on the Earth, you can push them together and they'll fit like a little puzzle. So right when this is all starting to break up, this dude, this little guy, lived right there in the middle. And as they're cracking up, he's like, Mom, Dad! And they're like, Son, Cousin! And then Granny was like, No! And like the, the world split apart. And these guys are found everywhere. But uh, So they're still surviving. Um, and some of them do, you know, one third of, of, of them survive. And I'm guessing it's probably the small ones. I'm guessing that's why we don't have a huge, gigantic, I mean, giraffe is about the biggest land mammal besides elephant that we have today. And I'm guessing we don't have like crazy brontosaurus. I mean, we have Loch Ness. Don't tell anybody I told you, but it's probably true. But, um, you know, other ones, because they just, the smaller ones don't need the amount of stuff that gets wiped out when something like that happens, like the vegetation that dies, um, you know, the other smaller ecosystems that die. So for whatever reason, a third of them lived. Sadly, uh, most of the therapsids would be kicked to the curb by the archosaurs or archosaurs. I don't know how to say this. Um, and early dinosaurs, which kind of overlapped. So archosaurs, they had a lot of advantages and toward the end of the Triassic period, they split off into primitive dinosaurs and they evolved into the prehistoric crocodiles that we have and the pterosaurs, which are the flying reptiles. And there's a P, a silent P in there, a pterosaur, right? So, yeah, the Triassic and Jurassic extinction, there, here comes a new, another extinction. That was the boundary between those two periods. And it was 201.3 million years ago. So 
from 250 million. So they, they, you know, they kicked it for 50 million years. They had, they had a good, uh, you know, between extinctions there. That was a pretty good, pretty good time period. Uh, 50 million years isn't long enough time to start splitting off. And then that was another huge extinction. And all of the conodonts, which was all of the eel-type uh, sea life, dead. For whatever reason, um, during this extinction, they all died out. Roughly 34% of marine life wiped out. And this could be coral, plankton, microorganisms, big, big animals. You know, for whatever reason, um, they don't find any of these eel fish type, uh, any, any of that family of eel-looking fish after that. So they all died out. Um, except for the crocodilomorphs, which is the raddest name for a punk band ever, um, the pterosaurs and actual dinosaurs, um, some therapsids and large amphibians totally became extinct. So that's the end of those guys. No more, no more of those. Only little tiny amphibians now. Okay. Like little bullfrogs and little newts, little stuff that's not going to gobble my leg off. I'm fine with that. So I think I'm done with this trip to the past. Um, I'm bored out of my Gordon. I think I've learned about as much as I'm going to. Let's hop back on the BMW Next 100 and ride our way back to the future. And while we're taking this trip back uh, back to the future, let's, um, let's think about a couple things here. One of them is that for 180 million years, lizards, dinosaurs, you know, they ran the earth, right? And humans, on the other hand, we've only been around for about 6 million years. And modern humans, like us, about 200,000 years. So according to universetoday.com, civilization as we know it has only been around for about 6,000 years. And industrialization since the 1800s. Uh, by my calculations, the Internet's been around since 1969 and the World Wide Web since about 1990. So... It's only in like the last 6,000 years that we've gone from like peeing and pooping in a cornfield, um, huddled around with our tribe mates, to being able to use our smartphones to buy something from somebody halfway across the world and then complain about it when we get it because it didn't meet our expectations. To meet those (laughs) and then, you know, and in the meantime, in the last 100 years is when we've we've got motorcycles and cars that uh, we've been mining all these little dinosaur things for and using them to make all this other great stuff happen. I love internal combustion, but I have to say, thinking about the way that some of these things died off and thinking about some of the things that I was reading about in these articles about how they're going to you know, try to mitigate global warming and climate change in the modern times made me kind of freaked out because I had just read about how, you know, all of a sudden oxygenation of methane led to global freezing, right? And then there was a dry period and then there's like been, there's been like six ice ages uh, here and there. And actually most of those ice ages, the last few of them have been grouped pretty close together within the last few hundred million years. So, and then all these crazy extinctions happening, you know, millions of years apart, but in the timeline, not very far apart from each other. And most of them do to weird stuff like, you know, blocking out the sun, stopping photosynthesis, you know, the, the stuff that we use right now in our bikes to launch us down the drag strips or to take our road trips that those guys died millions of years ago and have been turning into nice little fossil fuels for us to use. And unfortunately, when you look at a timeline of how things are going, uh, electric is going to have to be the wave of the future. Because once these things are gone, um, when you look at how long it took for that stuff to make what we use today, it's, uh, you know, 
It's a little sad. I'm going to miss combustion combustion engines. But even more, I'm going to miss being alive if uh, all this crazy stuff right now <laughs> that they're talking about, you know, the ways that the dinos died, they're thinking about using some of the same sort of stuff to mitigate global warming. Um, one of the ways they're talking about, you know, well, first off, let's talk about these committees, right? So these committees that are uh, caucuses that are being formed and climate control committees, they're saying, you know, you take away the EPA, we're going to start these other things anyway. So it doesn't really matter. We were already, we're already starting all these, uh, you know, sort of committees and caucuses addressing change solutions because military experts are saying that it's going to be, you know, a, a case of national security if the ice caps melt. And uh, it says that Russian has designs on a ice-free Arctic Ocean. Eh, I'm not 100% sure how scared of that I am. But at the same time, when you figure that you've got hotter temperatures and drought, that means less food, you know what I mean? And not only less food, but more uh, longer periods of time where mosquitoes are active and that makes like a whole new disease vector and that could become a health issue and you could wipe out whole populations through stuff like West Nile virus and all junk like that. So they're saying that global warming or even climate change is really, you know, you could look at it from a political standpoint and say it doesn't exist and you want to use it to get votes and use it to further your agenda to not, you know, to convince companies not to look into renewable energy, be it for cars or be it for whatever, you know, be it for making gasoline or um, to facilitate drilling or whatever in, in all these places and, and fracking and everything that they're trying to do to get the last squeeze out the last little bit of fossil fuels from these dinosaurs, millions and billions of years old. Right. But on the other hand, you know, when they're looking at trying to block out the sun on our planet to keep radiation from coming in, kind of freaky so i don't know that's just uh my two cents i'm done yapping about it but it's a really interesting topic and um i, I might write a little piece on it that dives a little bit deeper so you don't have to listen to me blab on and on and on about dinosaurs but they are what's in your gas tank so i thought it would be interesting to talk about i'm all for cloning them and bringing them back to life right now so that we can then kill them and bury them and uh future generations can reuse them in, in a billion more years they can Re redo this whole gasoline because I want future generations not to miss out on the sound of crackling camshafts and radical exhaust pipes. You know what I'm saying? All right. Enough about dinosaurs. All right, everybody. We'd like to remind you to check out friends of the show, dailybikers.com and Dan from Daily Bikers has a new shop up. So if you go to dailybikers.com and you hit the shop link, you'll probably be taken straight over to his new shop website. He's redone his site. I've actually got a chance to chat with him a little bit about it, and it looks and feels amazing. Go check it out, dailybikers.com. Get all your biker swag from dailybikers.com. Also, the WIR's top 10 bikes. I know they got to be getting ready to run the track soon. It is warming up everywhere in the States, and those guys are going to be... Uh, they're already eating tacos, but I've seen pictures of them rebuilding stuff, threatening each other. I'm surprised Goldmeyer's not dead after all the stuff that he leaked on the Solstice Slam. So that's good to see you're still around, buddy. But go check them out at WIR's Top 10 Bikes on Facebook. Check out the Smack Talk in action. Keep up with the racing action, and let's keep our fingers crossed for some exciting first-round stuff. 
Now, let's move on to Johnny J and the Flatfoot Flugies and 59 Cafe, one in the same, different name. Johnny J and the Flatfoot Flugies is a swing and jump blues band from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and it's also a husband and wife team that runs a Club 59 Cafe up there. They restore vintage motorbikes, they run vintage bike night in Coeur d'Alene, and they travel the Pacific Northwest playing vintage blues and jump blues and swing and all that fun stuff with their band Johnny J and the Flatfoot Flugies. So check them out at johnnyjswing.com or 59cafe.com Alright, alright everybody I'd like to mention a few things coming up here in town and across the globe Uh, April 8th the AMA Supermoto National Championship Series is kicking off at Kern County Raceway Park that's in Bakersfield, California it's where the I-5 Bike Fest was year before last I believe, yeah, year before last go check that out, April 9th Cretans Racing Benefits Party 2017, support your local Cretans racer, would ya? The Corsa Moto Classica is coming up pretty darn fast and this is the Cretans annual race fund party. They're going to have all sorts of fun stuff. You can even bring a shirt for them to screen with one of their designs. Uh, check out all that and more on our page if you need a link to where to go. The April 22nd Hippie Killer Garage is having a dirt track Saturday, April 22nd and it's going to be sponsored by Hell on Wheels and go to our page for info on that. The Revved Up Women Texas Motorcycle Expo. That's Ritama Park Racetrack in Selma, Texas. April 28th. Locally here to us, April 28th is the Tracker Cross at Milestone MX Park out in Riverside, California put on by the Rusty Butcher Crew. The Tracker Cross is going to be 28th, 29th, and 30th and it's going to be lots of hooligan fun. There's a Mad Max class. There's a Boonie Bike class. There's a like a 110 Pit Bike class. Uh, FXR class. Uh, street class run what you brung did i mention the mad max class where anything goes as long as it has wheels and you get around a get around the track hooligan class and pro hooligan class but no pros allowed pro hooligan class i think is just a little bit faster hooligans um but yeah no pros allowed that's what i love about this event they're keeping it real um the pasadena motorcycle club is having the greenhorn motorcycle ride may 6th at 8 a.m the Outliers Guild Moto Show is also happening May 6th at the Container Yard in Los Angeles. That's a Saturday starting at 10 a.m., May 6th. August 4th, the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. Ever heard of that? Do you remember our episode called Represi where we talked about the uh, Jack, was it the Jack Pine Gypsies that started that? Yeah, I think that's who started them. And uh, Pappy Hoyle started a, a little rally and it evolved into Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. That's happening August 4th. A little bit further away, but we still got some more stuff coming up this year. For all of this and more, go to our Facebook page at Creative Writing Podcast, all one word, on Facebook, and you'll pop up. Go check out our events links. And if you got something, shoot me an email at creativewritingpodcast at gmail.com or just click the send an email link via our Facebook page. Hit me up on Twitter at creative underscore writer. 
um, any any of these ways that you want to send some info, what's going down, uh, just shoot a time and a date and the name, and we'll throw it up on our page. That'd be great. And uh, or tell us what you got going on, and if you want to link to it, and we'd enjoy doing that just as much. So go to our page, check out all these events, pick one you want to go to, go to it. I'll see you there. You slap me in the face. We'll, we'll talk. everybody's had a wonderful episode 68 it's late sing sign hope you're happy thing called smog it was like a little uh, 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 let's hit it, baby. And then in my, excuse me, <laughs> download a free cop. <laughs> Thought it was a notable note. A notable note. That's I'm gonna leave that in. A notable note. That's my genius at work, right there, folks. Well, Azusa, Azusa, easy for me to say. And. Uh, other, otherwise, I'm uh, here to talk about some writing and well, everything. What, what else? <laughs> so at any rate, I went up to Azusa Canyon and God, I forgot I even wanted to talk about it. I just forgot to press the record button. I talked for like 20 minutes. Didn't record nothing awesome. <laughs>